This morning's scripture reading is a selection of verses from the New Testament on the theme of the work of the Holy Spirit. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I fall to my knees and pray to the Father that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. But the Spirit... But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do not get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Close one. Uh, we're beginning a new series this morning called Presence and Power, and those are really going to be the two things that we're seeking during the series as God's presence and God's power. We're going to be seeking those things as a church and seeking those things as individuals, wanting to not just understand God on an intellectual level, but how do we touch him? How do we feel him? How do we have his presence and his power rush through our midst like a wind, burn within us like a fire, wash over us like a wave? And it sounds sort of touchy-feely, and it is touchy-feely. That's exactly what we're talking about, touching and feeling, this tangible experience of, of God on a subjective level, not just objectively knowing he's there, but subjectively experiencing him. And I know that for many of you, uh, the thing you like about our church is that we usually steer clear of exactly these sorts of topics. You know, we usually focus on understanding God and we usually look at it from a very intellectual perspective. And so this is going to be a stretch for some of you. It's going to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable and I'll admit that it's actually a stretch for me. It makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, but that's good to to feel uncomfortable every once in a while. So uh, we've got plenty of time to to talk about this and this morning we're just going to look about it at, at one question in particular one angle which is why do I need to be filled with God's spirit what's the benefit of that and that's if you want to talk about this in the correct theological terms that's essentially what we're talking about in this series is being filled with God's spirit with the Holy Spirit but I don't want you to get hung up on uh, the terminology, because it, you, know, you can say the same thing a few different ways. So if it's easier for you to think about it in terms of getting closer to God or um, becoming, you know, letting God have more influence over your life or in your life, 
That's okay. You think about it however you want. What we're talking about is being filled with the Spirit, and we're going to be using that phrase a lot, but I don't want you to get hung up on that phrase. The point is, whatever phrase you want to use and however you want to look at it, the basic idea is you can have more or less of God in your life at any one point. So we frequently around here focus on this move from unbelief to belief, you know, crossing this line of, I don't know if God is even real, I don't even know if I believe in Jesus, to now I've turned the corner and I, I do believe. And that's a good thing to talk about and we'll continue to talk about it in the future. But what we're talking about in this series is even after you've turned that corner and even after you've made that change and you say, yes, I believe, yes, I want God in my life, you can still have more or less of God in your life in any given moment. And we want to say, what are the factors involved in that? We want to ask, how do I get more of him? How do I be nearer to him? How do I not just know about him in my mind, but actually feel him as a real person in my life, as real to me as any of the other people in my life? How do I be filled with the Spirit? And I, like I said, well, Spirit. Um, like I said, this morning I just want to convince you why that's important and why that's something you should seek. Because some of you may not care about that or may not be interested in seeking that. For, for others of you, you know, when I say, when I use these phrases like filled with God's spirit or uh, God's, more of God's presence in your life, closer to God, drawing near to God, for some of you when I say those things, you're stirred and you're immediately drawn to it and, and you say, yes, I want that. But for others of you, you think, well, what are those things really mean. You know, I think I need a little more explanation. And the, the truth is for a lot of people, they want just enough religion in their life to, to ground them, but not so much to make them a fanatic. You know, they're, they're trying to find this happy, happy medium that they think exists where they can, they can be sort of spiritual, but not, you know, over the top, not believe too much. This this golden mean where they're just quasi-religious, just enough to provide a foundation for their morals. And so acknowledging that, then that means that many of you are probably in the situation where you think, well, I, I think I'm actually quite pleased with precisely the level of God I have in my life right now. You know, come to church, sing the songs, I'm better off than a lot of my peers, I'm right in that happy middle ground without getting too crazy, so I, I'm pretty content And if that's you, what I'm trying to do with this morning's message is convince you that you're wrong. Convince you that out of all the things you want in 2015, more fullness of God's spirit in your life should be the top of that list. So what I want to do is I want to run through six benefits, six good things that would happen to you if you were more full of God's spirit. And we could talk about many more than that. The list is much longer than that. In fact, of the six, we're actually really only going to look at four, and then we'll just have time to mention the last two briefly. But we'll run through each of these six, and we'll spend a couple of minutes talking about each one, and then we'll just abruptly wrap up and call it a day. So after we list all of these good things about being filled with the Spirit, it'll be a cliffhanger sermon, and then there's no how-to. I won't be telling you how to be filled with the Spirit. I won't be talking about any application or instructions or something you're supposed to do. It's just strictly an infomercial to try to get you hooked and say, yes. I want that. How much does it cost? Where do I sign? We're going to be talking about all those things over the the coming weeks. But this morning, I just want to make you hungry for it. So that's where we're going. Six things, and I'll just give them to you one at a time as we go along. And we've got a scripture passage for each one as well. So number one, 
The first thing that happens to you if you're filled with God's Spirit or if you're under the influence of God's Spirit is you're able to believe. First, you're able to believe. And the verses uh, for this one, I apologize, by the way, that we don't have them up on the screen, but you can follow along on your program. These are all in the back of your program if you'd like to follow along as I read through these. The verses for uh, this first one, you're able to believe, come from 1 Corinthians. Jane just read all of these. Paul writes, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. And cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. And he says later, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And this is a question I get a lot. How do I have faith? How do I believe? You know, I hear what you're saying. I even like some of what you're saying. But I don't know how to cross this line from where I'm at, which is, you know, it sounds nice, but I don't really believe it to what these people around me I see who are singing and seem to believe it, and it's, it's real to them. How do you make that leap? How does that happen from unbelief to belief? And the answer is the only way it can happen is by the power of the Spirit coming upon you. It has to be this miraculous, supernatural thing. Nobody can say, that was the line, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I love that other line he has, which is, without the Spirit, if the Spirit doesn't influence you or have power over you, then you just consider it foolishness, which is, of course, the way that a lot of the world looks at all of this. You know, they look at it as foolishness. Earlier in the same passage, he says, preaching itself is foolishness. He talks about the foolishness of preaching. And I love that he says that because I feel that. It's something I feel every week, the foolishness of preaching. I'm preparing the sermon, and I look at what I'm supposed to, to tell you based on the Bible is the truth. And I think, nobody's going to believe this. You know, this is, this is not credible. You know, this is, this is foolishness. Every, every week I get up here and say, Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, and he died on the cross for your sins, and he rose again from the dead to set you free from the power of sin, and he wants you to believe in him and follow him. And how do you think I feel after I've said it? Do you think I feel like, well, I think I made a pretty good case this week. No, there's, there's, there's no case. There's, there's no case at all. I have no case. God has to make the case. God has to be the one to connect the dots. That's the only way it ever happens. That's the only way belief ever springs into being. So what I'll say is if it has ever made sense to you at all, if it has ever resonated, if, it, if you have found it within yourself to believe, guess what? That's God's spirit. And conversely, if you can't believe, if you, if you can't make that leap, what I'll say to you is, it's not something you can will yourself into. You know, you can't just make yourself believe. It has to be God's spirit coming on you. Now, that doesn't mean you're totally off the hook and, well, so, you know, I don't have to do anything. We're going to talk in subsequent weeks about how you can be open to the work of God's spirit versus closed. But the point for now is just that it's not a natural process. It's a supernatural process. That's the first thing that happens when you're filled with God's spirit is you have the power to believe. Number two, secondly, and this is closely related but a slightly different emphasis, the second thing that happens when you're filled with God's spirit is that spiritual realities actually feel real. Number two, spiritual realities actually feel real. And you can look on your program there. The verse for the passage for this one is from Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being 
to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So you hear what he says. He said, I pray that you may be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to grasp how full, how the full extent of Christ's love. And it's interesting that he says this because he has spent thousands of words in all of his letters trying to explain Christ's love and arguing about the extent of Christ's love and giving pictures and metaphors and uh, appealing to history and going all through the Old Testament and showing how Christ it fulfills all these prophecies and trying to get it across intellectually, this love of Christ, the meaning of the cross uh, for us. But then he says, at the end of the day, all I can do is pray for the power of the Holy Spirit that you can grasp, that you can grasp how high and how long and how wide and how deep is the love of Christ. What he's saying is, you can know about it, I can tell you about it, but if you're going to actually grasp it, that's going to have to be through the power of the Spirit. And grasp doesn't mean belief. It's different than belief. He's talking about it gripping you, you gripping it, and making this indelible impression on you. Not just being exposed to it, but it, it impressing its image upon you so that it emotionally resonates. So, uh, to use an illustration, uh, photography in the old days, when you had film, the film had to be sensitized with chemicals. And if it was sensitized with chemicals, then the, the shutter would open and the light would come in, bouncing off the subject, and it would hit the film. And because it was sensitized, it would leave an image on the film. The shutter closes just, a, just an instant, but that image is there forever. Now, if the film wasn't sensitized with chemicals, if there was if something had gone wrong, the shutter opens, the light comes in, hits the film, closes, and nothing happens. Nothing happens at all. And we're like the film... And the spirit is the one who's like this, this sensitizing chemical, this force that makes you receptive to these spiritual truths. So it's one thing to know it. It's one thing to know that God loves you. It's another thing for when that hits you, for it to really hit you and to make an emotional impact. And it's something that grips you on a soul level, on a heart level. And if that happens, if you have been sensitized by the Spirit, to the extent that you are full of the Spirit, then you hear these spiritual truths that you've been told about and you may mentally assent to, and they, they feel real. So if somebody is talking about God's sovereignty and God's goodness, it makes you feel safe. If somebody's talking about God's grace, it makes you feel loved. If somebody is talking about God's holiness, it makes you feel zealous to be a holy person yourself. It's not just intellectual anymore. For example, in in, uh, Romans 8, there's that famous line where Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And you can read that, and it can be just kind of an an intellectual thing. Well, that's an interesting idea. If God is for us, who can be against us? But that's not how Paul meant it when he wrote it. He wasn't just thinking it. He was feeling it. He wasn't saying, well, if, if God, who is infinitely powerful, were theoretically on my side, then any potential opposition would hypothetically at least be irrelevant. It's not this intellectual exercise. He feels it. He's saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's the Spirit's work in him. Oftentimes when I'm preparing a sermon, I'll have some thought come to mind, and I'll be typing it, and I'll just break down and start crying. This doesn't happen all the time, but probably about half the time, half the sermons I write, at some point during the the preparation process, I start crying, and it's not a new truth. It's not something 
novel, not something, it's like, it wasn't the freshness of the inside, it just, for some reason, it struck me. That's the spirit. That's the spirit of God making these spiritual realities that you might mentally ascend to actually feel real. That's the second thing fullness of the spirit does. Number three, moving on, the third benefit of being filled with the spirit is your character is transformed. Third, your character is transformed. You can look on your program. The verse for this one is from Galatians 5, 22 and 23, famous verse. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. In other words, if you are lacking in any of those nine qualities, that is directly attributable to a lack of fullness of the Spirit in your life. And it's not an accident that, that Paul uses this metaphor of fruit. This is a metaphor with a long history, a, a long pedigree. Paul is borrowing it from Jesus, and Jesus borrowed it from the Old Testament. And the idea is, when you have a tree, it naturally, organically produces fruit on its branches, almost as if by magic. You know, nobody does anything. It's just some, some water and some sunlight. And then all of a sudden, fruit appears. And he's saying it should be like that. If you're full of the Spirit, these virtues should just appear in your life naturally and organically. Slowly, but naturally and organically. Now, it's, it's one thing for that to happen. It's another thing to try to fake it. You know, anybody, cause, so you have to ask yourself, do I have these things? Am I this type of person? Am I this loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, gentle, faithful person? Do I have self-control? And anybody can fake it for a time. You know, anybody in a, in a given circumstance can act patient, can, can make themselves be loving. It's kind of like you, you take a piece of fruit and you tie it up on the branch with a string. But eventually it's going to fall off. And that's a very different thing from actually changing who you are at the fundamental base level of who you are. It's kind of like how it is with, with losing weight. I use this example because it's uh, the New Year's resolutions time. This is obviously every year the number one New Year's resolution by far. And we know, with, you know endless studies have been performed now on losing weight, and we know two things basically for, for sure. The first thing we know is that it's really easy to lose weight. Almost anybody can do it. There's myriad different ways to do it. Uh, it's just not hard to lose weight. We've shown that time and time again. The second thing we know is that it is virtually impossible to keep weight off for 5, 10, 15 years. It just doesn't happen. It, it happens occasionally, but it happens very, very rarely. It's almost impossible. There's very few instances of people keeping weight off for 5, 10, 15 years. Why is it so easy to lose it and so hard to keep it off? Well, it's easy to lose it because anybody through willpower can determine, I'm going to stick to this diet for three months or six months. And even through willpower, you can say, I'm going to maintain these changes for a year or two years or three years. But eventually, it's like you're fighting the autopilot, you know, and you're, you're taking the wheel and going in this direction, but the autopilot is pulling the whole time, and eventually, you give in and things return to normal. Because to keep the weight off for, for the rest of your life, you'd have to change more than just this, this routine. You'd actually have to change on a very deep level, biologically, psychologically, mentally, emotionally, maybe even spiritually. And it's not, that's not a matter of willpower. It's not even clear to what extent individuals have control over those things. So let's move from 
losing weight, which our culture is obsessed with, but happens to be very insignificant in the grand scheme of things, to something that really matters, which is your moral and spiritual development. It's the same thing there. You can try to drum up these qualities, but you can't just decide in the long term to change. If you're, if you're sad all the time, can you just decide to be happy? If you struggle with fear, can you just decide to stop being afraid? If you're jealous or you're critical or you're proud or you run from relational problems or you never listen, you can't just decide to change these things. It has to be change that happens on a much deeper level. And that's the only type of change that can be accomplished by fullness of God's Spirit. It's God's Spirit coming, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This is why, by the way, that some of you, you give in to the same temptation over and over and over again, even though every time you swear that was going to be the last time. Why is that? Why does that happen? Paul talks about this in Romans 7. You can look at this on your program at well. As well, he says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? You don't need resolutions. You don't need vows or decisions or choices. You need deliverance. And Paul, you know, this is the end of Romans chapter 7 where he's talking about this experience of I can't do the thing I want to do. I always do the thing I don't want to do. At the end of chapter 7, then he moves to chapter 8. And chapter 8 of Romans happens to be the single greatest chapter in the whole Bible on what? This theme of being filled with God's Spirit. He says, that's how I used to be. But now, to the extent that I'm full of God's Spirit, I'm not like that anymore. It's the third thing that happens when you're filled with God's Spirit, your character is transformed on a far deeper level than you could accomplish on your own. Fourth, moving on. The fourth thing that happens when you're filled with God's spirit is you experience joy and peace. Fourthly, you experience joy and peace. And the verse for this one is uh, there on your program. Two verses from Ephesians 5 and Romans 14. Do not get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the spirit. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So let's focus on this, this line, do not get drunk on wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. I think there's two wrong ways that you can take that line that make it kind of unattractive. The first wrong way you can take it is, is it's kind of this puritanical, you know, saying, don't be fun, don't have fun, be religious instead. You know, like, don't, don't uh, watch TV, read your Bible instead. Don't have sex, pray instead. Don't drink wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. But that's not what he's saying. That's the wrong way to take it. The other wrong way you can take it is this just kind of cheesy, geeky, saying like, I don't, I don't need drugs. I'm high on Jesus. And I think that's also not the right way to take it. The right way to take it is, what, what is he really doing here? He's reasoning with us. And he's asking us, okay, what are you seeking when you get drunk? Because you're seeking something. You know, you're not doing it for no reason. You're after something. What are you seeking when you get drunk. And you're, what you're seeking is pretty straightforward. You just want to feel good. And feeling good can be broken down into two constituent parts. It consists of joy in the first place, this kind of mild euphoria, this pleasure, certain happiness, positive emotions, and then peace, this, your problems getting small. You're not anxious. You're not worried about things. So when, when you get drunk, you're looking for a modicum of joy and peace. 
And Paul says, you can go searching for joy and peace through alcohol if you want, but a far more reliable path to joy and peace is through fullness of the Holy Spirit. And that's what you see all throughout the, the New Testament. That's what you see all throughout Christian history is this testament to the fact that when you are full of the Spirit, accompanied with that, coming along with that part of the territory, is this experience, this subjective experience of joy and peace. Now, it doesn't mean that you never get sad anymore, that nothing bad happens. It's this foundational joy and peace such that your highs are higher and last longer, and your lows aren't quite as low and don't last quite as long. So when you do get sad, when you do get down, when you have sorrow, that sorrow doesn't have quite as sharp an edge because there's an underlying joy beneath it. Or when you do get anxious, and of course you still will, when you do have turmoil about you, there's this underlying peace that makes it not quite as disruptive. So that's part of it, this foundational joy and peace that's always there with you, And then on top of that, there's also these occasional, it's not all the time, but occasional intense experiences of joy and peace that are quite memorable through fullness of the Spirit. So there's all sorts of accounts of this in in the Bible and throughout church history. Uh, One anecdote that I think is particularly impactful comes from Blaise Pascal. And the reason I think this is a good example is because for many of you, when you think of like an intense, joyful, and, and peaceful experience in the spirit. Uh, those of you who are left brain types and kind of logical and structured and intellectual, work in finance or law, you think that this sort of thing is only for the, you know, the creatives, the, the poets and the, the singers and the artists. But Blaise Pascal was not one of those types. This is a brilliant scientist and mathematician. You've heard of uh, Pascal's triangle, which he came up with for organizing uh, binomial coefficients. So this is not this, you know, kind of out there guy. Brilliant philosopher, scientist, and mathematician also happened to be an extremely devout Christian. And when he died, they found sewed in his, uh, the lining of his jacket, this, this journal entry, which said this. It said in, in part, it said, in the year of 1654, so this is what he carried with him always. In the year of 1654, Monday, of 23rd of November, from about half past ten in the evening till about half an hour after midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Not the God of the philosophers and of the learned. Certainty, joy, certainty, emotion, sight, joy, 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 tears of joy. My God, never leave me. Let me not be separated from you. It's not just for poets and artists because it's not based on your personality. It's based on fullness of God's spirit. And that's the fourth thing that you get when you're full of God's spirit is you experience joy and peace. And then uh, number five and number six, like I said, just for the sake of time, we're only going to mention these in passing, but I do want to put them out there at least. So the fifth one is you have guidance and direction regarding decisions. Number five, you have guidance and direction regarding decisions. If you look on your program, the verse for this one is... From Colossians 1.9, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. People basically come to God for, for one of two reasons, usually. They come because some, either something really bad happened in their life, 
or because they have a really hard decision that they won't help with and they don't know what to do. And so the way it usually works with the hard decision is, you know, you've, you've got this decision that you're facing and you come and say, well, God, you know, I haven't prayed in a long time, I know, but please show me what to do. Give me a sign. Or you, you pull out your Bible and start flipping through it and hope that you're going to hit upon a verse that shows you what to do. And that's just not how it works. It doesn't work like that at all. The way it works is as you cultivate this relationship with God over time, and as you become filled with his spirit to an increasing extent over time, his spirit gently guides you all the time, oftentimes without you even realizing it. And then when you do face this difficult decision, the relationship's already there. The lines of communication are already open. You already have the spirit, and the spirit can direct you. That's the fifth benefit of being filled with the spirit is you have direction and guidance when it comes to these difficult decisions. And lastly, briefly, sixth, Uh, your relationships with others are deepened. The sixth one we're going to talk about this morning, and again, just in in passing, is your relationships with others are deepened. I actually left the verse for this one off my notes, but you see it there in your program where Paul talks about when you're full of the Spirit, you're going to have these deeper relationships with others. He says, I want you to have unity of peace in the Spirit. He says, I want you to put away all these relational maladies and instead be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another because you're full of the Spirit. So when I say, if, if I were to say to you, you know, so-and-so over there is, uh, is full of the Spirit, that person's a person who's filled with the Spirit, you might think of that person as being sort of kind of otherworldly, so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. But that's not right. Uh, it, it is true that in one sense being full of the Spirit does make you care less about this world, certain things about the world, so you care less about material things if you're full of the Spirit. For, for instance, you care less about money and clothes and houses and cars and that sort of thing. You care less about superficial things, care less about uh, pop culture gossip and who wins the Super Bowl and all that. But you care more about the world than ever before if you're full of the Spirit in the sense that you care more about the people in the world. So it's not the case that what we're talking about, being filled with God's Spirit, makes you kind of not need other people. Like, oh, I've got this direct line to God now, so it's just me and God, and I'm too holy for the rest of you all. Anyway, no. Rather, when you're full of the Spirit, you finally have the power to be the friend and the husband or wife or the mother or father that you've always wanted to be. Because before, sin is in the way. You know, we've talked about this a thousand times in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are together. They're close. They're having this wonderful relationship, and then sin comes in, and there's a distance between them. And that's been the human condition ever since. This loneliness and this isolation that you try to cross this chasm to the other people in your life, but it's very difficult to do so. The Spirit gives you the confidence and the courage and the rootedness in somebody besides yourself and in somebody besides your immediate loved ones to actually have strong relationships and to care about others in this way that you couldn't before. It's the sixth benefit of being filled with the Spirit is that you, your relationships with others are deepened. So let's wrap up. That, that's it for this morning. Like I said, we could have listed a lot more, but let me just review what we have here. We have you're able to believe spiritual realities actually feel real. Your character is transformed. You experience joy and peace. You have guidance and direction regarding decisions, and your relationships with others are deepened. It's a pretty impressive list. I'm almost too impressive. You know, you might think, well, that sounds a little bit too good to be true. You know, snake oil, this magical panacea being filled with the spirit that makes all my problems go away. 
And so we can, we can disagree about whether it's real or whether it isn't real. What I think we can all agree on is that if it is real, it's something worth seeking. And that's what I want us to be talking about over the next six weeks is how do you seek this? Because a lot of us, and myself included, don't experience this to, to the full extent that we could. You have the right to these things. You know, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you've given your life over to God, these things are yours. The Spirit is already yours. But that doesn't mean that you're taking advantage of them and drawing upon them. It's sort of like, and we'll close with this, it's sort of like if you knew, kind of in the back of your mind, that a long time ago this relative had died and left you this money, and it's sitting in an account somewhere, but you'd just sort of forgotten about it. You come into this time in your life where uh, you hit some financial difficulties and you're running out of money and you have to cut back and it's, it's really painful. But what if the money in that account had grown far bigger than anybody ever imagined? It's just sitting there, but you're not drawing on it. It's yours. It's legally yours, but you're living poor. That's the experience that a lot of Christians are in when it comes to the Holy Spirit and fullness of God's presence. It's yours. It's legally yours, but you're still living poor. So what I want to talk about over the next six weeks is how do we remedy that? And like I said, no answers this morning. I just hope as you think about these things and meditate on them over the next seven days that your hunger for this will grow. Let's pray. Father, we ask for more of your spirit in our lives. We believe in you, but we've limited the role that you play. We've given our lives to you, but then we've put a distance between ourselves and you. And God, we want to come to you and say, we want to be filled with you. We want to be close to you. We want these benefits. We want the power to believe. We want joy and peace. We want to feel these spiritual truths, not just give them mental assent. We want our relationships with others to be deepened. We want your guidance when it comes to difficult decisions. So we ask you to come. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come. We ask you to come now, even as we pray. We ask you to come into this church. We ask you to come into our lives. Now, with our heads still bowed, I want to pray a second prayer for for those of you who maybe have never even been acquainted with this whole idea of the Holy Spirit before. You don't even know if you've given your life to God before. And I want to pray a prayer that if you, if you pray this along with me, it's just a way for you to say, God, I want you to come into my life. I want to, to develop and establish a relationship with you. You can just say these words along with me in your mind as I say them. God, I don't understand everything that's been said, and I don't understand very much about you. But I do know that I've turned my back on you and that I've been trying to live my life without you. And I want that to change. I want to have your spirit in me. I want you to be leading me and guiding me. I want to be living my life with you, not apart from you. So please forgive me for everything I've done. Please help me to feel your love. And please, by the power of Jesus, would you come into my life and make me whole. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.